0: Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. This is Untangling the Lines. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren, and today I'm joined by Lori.
1: Hi, my name is Lori. I'm a certified veterinary technician and I work in the surgery department and I run anesthesia. Today we are going to be talking
0: about how cats are not small dogs. So we're going to go through kind of all these species differences as to why cats can sometimes be more challenging than typically what we encounter with our dogs.
1: Yeah, so cats are tricky little beasts. They don't follow any of the rules no. for anesthesia. No, never. And I often, when I'm working
0: with someone new, I almost always tell them, you're gonna feel like you're you are being reactive to the cat more than being proactive, which is usually what I try to teach them with dog anesthesia. but. I feel like we're just going up and down a roller coaster the whole time, and it's not because we're doing a bad job. It's just...
1: A cat. A cat. We spend a lot of time troubleshooting and playing catch-up during the procedure, during the anesthetic event, to try and figure out just what is happening with this cat. Yeah, of course. And then, I mean,
0: hopefully everything is going smoothly, but it's never always guaranteed. No. I guess to start, we should... Kind of discuss how the drugs differ between cats and dogs and the first thing i usually think about is actually how cats generally have a higher inhalant requirement compared to dogs
1: i would agree with that it's um they do require a higher inhalant they have a high, increased mac than dogs um and
0: the difference is it's not huge it's if the mac of a dog is 1.3 percent For a cat, it averages around 1.6, 1.7. It depends on which study you look at, but they do tend to ride a little bit higher.
1: Right, so I don't think it is ideal to say you're running your dogs generally at 1.5% or 2%. Um, I think that not necessarily you don't have to increase your... Vaporizer, vaporizer setting. setting to 3 or 4% just because it's a cat. I think it's still circumstantial.
0: Yeah, and I think it's going to come down to what other drugs you're using, what other max-bearing drugs um, like opioids, midazolam, dexmed. If you have a really strong pre-med and you have a flat cat, which is my favorite kind of cat. <laughs> um, but if you have a very sedate cat after the pre-med, you probably don't need much of an inhalant. And that kind of crosses species boundaries. It's true about
1: really anyone that we're talking about. Right. I think that's one of our major goals when we're developing an anesthetic protocol is that it's as balanced as possible. You want to do whatever you can to lower your inhalant as much as possible um, because then I, I think that you'll have a smoother anesthetic period and you can also kind of decrease your instances of bradycardia and hypotension. Yes, exactly. And I do find that sometimes
0: it is harder to get them into that happy, steady plane of anesthesia. And so we end up having to reach for more max sparing techniques, um, considering a dexmedetomidine CRI, uh, a fentanyl CRI, that and benzodiazepines uh, and ketamine, I guess they all kind of work together, but you might just have to. To branch out faster with a cat than you would with a dog and just don't be caught off guard if you're like oh my god they are still light
1: <laughs> yes i think that i like to if the cat can tolerate it and there's no other underlying disease processes happening i do think that um small boluses of ketamine and medaz help to kind of relax them and i think relaxing their muscle tone somehow helps them Yep stay under anesthesia a little bit smoother yeah. um, and then I do worry a little bit about giving intermittent ketamine boluses just because of how they could react in recovery yeah. um, but I guess that's just a decision you have to kind of outweigh
0: yeah so if you think that you have either a compromised liver or compromised kidney function the clearance of ketamine out of the body is going to be slower for these guys We already know that cats in general metabolize drugs, I think as a general principle, a little bit slower than dogs because of their liver differences. And as a result, you might see more kind of dysphoria on the recovery phase than you would otherwise expect with a dog. And so I think those are very helpful, but at some point you have to, I don't know, sometimes I get a little nervous about doing significant repeat dosing of ketamine. At least midazolam is reversible, so we can always give flumazenil at the end if we need to, where ketamine, we kind of just have to ride it out.
1: Yes, I agree with that.
0: So moving on, the other thing that's important to discuss with cats is that they do have a decreased toxic threshold or a decreased maximal dose for local anesthetics compared to dogs. So we often run our dogs with a lidocaine CRI. I think FLK is very common. Um, I love using lidocaine CRIs in dogs with any kind of GI procedures, but in cats, it's really just not an option and mostly because they aren't able to metabolize that lidocaine and they are more likely to have cardiac and CNS toxicity. With these common lidocaine CRI doses,
1: yeah, it's nice in dogs to be able to have that lidocaine CRI. I know that I use that all the time, especially for GI, like you said, um, and it is. Uh, it does make it a little bit more challenging in cats because you don't have that CRI extra CRI. Lidocaine is just so useful. Mm. Um, and so in cats you just don't have that option option and
0: if you have a cat that's having significant ventricular arrhythmias like ventricular tachycardia usually lidocaine is the first line medication to treat that and in cats we still are very hesitant to use it and if you do feel the need to use lidocaine i've actually seen a criticalist give a quarter make per cake 0.25 makes per cake which is one eighth of the normal dog dose and it actually worked Mm -hmm. it it stopped the vt in that cat and uh, the cat seemed fine like didn't seem to have any bad side effects from it but it's something that i feel like everyone's usually very sensitive to
1: yes i think as a general rule we just say that there's no lidocaine in cats except for the larynx but
0: we'll get to that later (laughs) Uh, The other thing that we like to think about are our opioids. And I think everyone has probably seen, I call it fentanyl rage, but that hyper reactivity to especially full mu opioid agonists. So that includes um, your hydromorphone, morphine, uh, fentanyl, really high dose Mm -hmm. of fentanyl. I guess that's also can be true of methadone.
1: Yeah, it's that typical behavior where I think everybody has seen it where the cat basically like can grab a hold of your arm and with all claws out or just manically running around its cage, rubbing up on the bars. Yeah. That kind of behavior. Yeah. It's almost like a dysphoria in a in a way. A dysphoria and an almost like they need to get away from whatever Stimuli they have going on. I think they can
0: also be very like noise sensitive um, as part of that as well. And so we generally try to avoid giving high doses of full mu opioids, but I can think of one. We did a PDA treatment or a PDA coil in a cat. It was super rare, it was very exciting. And the cat had significant heart disease. And so, as a kind of a max bearing and sympathetic squasher, I was using a higher dose of fentanyl and then on the recovery side i had forgotten it well in our hubbub of moving to radiology and confirming coil placement and all this stuff i had forgotten at just how much fentanyl i had given that cat with the i had in the back of my head i'll probably have to reverse some of this but the cat was still very much anesthetized as we're rolling to radiology and then as we're waiting for the x-ray table the cat sprung off the off the table onto the onto the ground we had to squash it with a towel like to keep it from running down the hallway and in the meantime i had the cat's uh claws and teeth like gum deep in my hand i was just i mean after doing this cardiac procedure i didn't want to drop this cardiac cat Mm -hmm. but it was the it was the fentanyl rage and i still have scars on my arm from that from that time and i i use it as an education tool now Whereas I remind kind of the younger anesthetists that be careful of fentanyl rage because it can, it's, it's real. It's very much real.
1: Yeah. I think that in, in these cats that are more compromised, less healthy cardiac cats, I'm thinking of hyperthyroid cats where your drug usage is limited as far as sedative. Yeah. Proper sedatives yeah. goes. Um, so you really, I think we rely more on, um, using an opioid to kind of give us a little bit of sedation in those cats. Um, especially if the cat is acting bright and alert responsive, because you can also get that from midazolam. Absolutely. If you give midazolam to a young, healthy cat, the cat's going to shoot up to the ceiling Yes. before it gets sedate enough. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I think in those less healthy cats, our, our sedative effects are, we have just, not as many good options as we would in dogs. Yeah, they're just more They're just
0: more challenging. Absolutely. The other thing to think about with opioids in cats is they have a higher rate of hyperthermia, so increased body temperatures with our opioids. And it's not just full mues. It's morphine, hydromorphone, and buprenorphine. And from our pre- previous podcast, remember that buprenorphine is a partial mu agonist. And sometimes this hyperthermia can be pretty severe.
1: Yeah, I think I've I remember seeing or hearing um you can get sometimes a temperature of 103, 104. And 106. I've, okay, and I think sometimes the first question is, okay, well, what have they gotten for drugs? Is I think buprenex is a very common post uh surgery analgesia for cats and a lot of the times we'll say oh okay they got bubernex
0: yeah and at that point we were just taking out all of the towels all of the well we're definitely removing the bear hugger and everything out out of that cage letting them sit on the kind of cool metal cage bottom and sometimes we put a fan in front of them and unfortunately we don't really know why this happens um it actually is also seen with ketamine in cats as well and there's been some studies thinking that it might actually be associated with its degree of hypothermia, so low body temperature in surgery, then has a reflexive spike after. I don't know if that's really true. Um, I don't think we really know, but I do know that with these drugs, we do tend to see body temperatures up to 104, 105, 106. And sometimes even not anesthetically related, a cat that's receiving buprenorphine in the ICU for some other reason that hasn't had surgery, those cats can sometimes have temperatures in the 104s and everyone kind of shrugs it off and says buprenics, uh, especially if like the chest rads are clear and don't show any signs of pneumonia or other clinical signs that would account for that fever. Well, I guess moving on to analgesics in cats, we know that cats generally respond very well to buprenorphine. I think some would say that buprenorphine is a better analgesic than most full mu agonists, even though we know that in the brain it doesn't cause as dramatic or as significant of an effect as being a partial agonist. Although it seems like when you push cats too far with a full mu agonist, they tend to have that hyperreactivity dysphoria. And so we push past the making muffins and we're now into the, the panicked craze. I don't think that seems to happen as much with methadone as an option. Um, but again, buprenorphine is really popular for that reason. But then with our non-steroidals in dogs, we tend to use Rimadyl, sometimes meloxicam. And in cats, we actually I don't think I've ever seen rimadil prescribed to a cat. I don't think it's a, mm-hmm. a thing. Instead, we have oncior, which is robenicoxib, and meloxicam.
1: I think in the past... I feel like giving nonsteroidal anti-inflammatories to cats was somewhat controversial. I think people were really concerned for the increased kidney disease following administration or prolonged administration. I do feel like for a while, we weren't giving nonsteroidals post-operatively in a lot of our cats, and maybe that's just because of their underlying disease and the fact that we see more compromised cats than we do young, healthy cats, like in a general practice setting. Yep. I think it's more common, maybe there to give it as part of the post-operative care protocol. Hopefully. Yeah, But I do think that we are starting to get back to that. And the anesthetists in our department, I think are really good about asking the anesthetist and the or anesthesiologist and the surgeon, is this appropriate to give for the cats, because I do think that it is beneficial for pain control post-operative. Absolutely,
0: absolutely, especially with reducing that peripheral sensitization that comes with inflammation. I do think that there's generally that I agree with you about the increased concern for kidney disease. So many cats, I feel like, have chronic kidney disease. They're more likely to have urinary obstructions, which then can cause some degree of kidney damage, even if it doesn't seem to be clinical in short in the short term. And they're also higher risk of AKI. So I do think it's that. I can't think of a time when I've ever seen a cat for a GI perforation from an NSAID, which is something that we really think about with dogs.
1: Right. I don't think that I have heard that either or seen any journal articles suggesting that. Yeah. I think that's something perhaps we we'll follow up on. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But it, that does seem to be
0: the dog concern. Dogs think about livers, the GI, the kidneys. Where cats, it's kidney, kidney, kidney. Always. So that can sometimes limit us. But even if we can't give an NSAID, I mean, we can always still use noceta. They just came out with that paper that talked about using noceta for um, D-claws. And we've been using it in other incisions, like abdominal incisions. And I'm trying to think of other procedures we do in cats.
1: But I guess if you were doing... um... Just a simple mass removal, removal that wasn't cancerous, or even yeah. an orthopedic, yeah, on yeah. a cat Maybe like fracture or um, knee surgery. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the noceta, now that they've published that pa- paper about it being useful in cats, um, so it is a liposomal uh, bupivacaine mm-hmm. that's good for up to seventy-two hours. Yeah. I think that is um, very helpful, especially for pain scoring your patients overnight and the next day. Mm-hmm. I think they are a lot more comfortable, especially in the area around the incision. Yep. I think that helps them get back to a more normal state faster. Yep. So they're requiring less opioids, which means that potentially they're eating faster and then we can get them home faster.
0: Especially because we know opioids can work really funky in cats. Yes. So it, being able to re- avoid that is awesome. And I know earlier we were talking about the increased sensitivity of cats to local anesthetics, and that is true of bupivacaine as well. However, because of the way that it's stored, the bupivacaine is actually released, released much slower than if you just gave a single IV bolus or even a sub-Q, kind of like linear uh, infiltration. Like if you think about um, how people do line blocks, for example, with a local block. by doing with without liposomes and the way that they degrade s- slower, you actually get much less plasma concentrations or systemic concentrations of the local anesthetic, which keeps it still being safe for use in cats, which is really cool and uh, really awesome. It's finally, finally we have an option for cats, which is great. So next on the docket, we were going to discuss kind of the logistical issues with just anesthetizing cats versus, uh, versus dogs. And they generally are smaller than most dogs. They're definitely smaller than like a mastiff What you have, 60 kegs, 65 kegs the other day? Yes. Huge. Monster. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, Maine Coons can get pretty big, but they won't get that big. Um, and with that, they tend to be at a greater hypothermia risk, especially with open-body cavities. So, But I guess that's even true about two keg Yorkies, but just yeah, a, a matter think, of size.
1: Yeah, they lose... Heat very quickly, you know, within the first 10 minutes yep. of inducing under anesthesia. Yep. I do think, so having warmies and a under some kind of an underbody warming system yep. is very helpful. And just keeping track of the temperatures. I You can get into the OR and your cat is already at 94 degrees. Yeah, just and, from the cold scrub. Just from the cold scrub and laying on the cold table and then... You know, waiting for the surgeon to enter to the, enter the room.
0: God help you if you need to go to X-ray. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like the Arctic. Uh, it's for some reason that table just zaps all the heat out of them. So, all right. So they have a small body size, but then also intubating them can actually be a bit of a a challenge sometimes.
1: It can be a challenge. I like to drop, with all my cats, I will drop some lidocaine. Usually it's 0.1 to 0.2. I'll usually drop in the syringe 0.2, but then I only end up giving half or so. And you mean mils total? Mls, yes, 0.1 to 0.2 mls of lidocaine in a syringe, in a 1 ml syringe. When we give the induction agents, then whoever's helping me intubate will open the mouth for me and then I'll take off the needle and then put a few drops of the lidocaine right, um, on the, um, on larynx. the arytenoids and the, yeah. arytenoids and the larynx. Yeah. And I think the goal of this, they're just so
0: much more prone to what's called the Ringo where, their airways get irritated and then those arytenoids, those um, vertical flaps really like kind of clamp down and shut down. And then the cat turns blue, turns purple, and you, and they're shut down. So it can be really hard to then intubate them and get them to breathe um, oxygen. And so using the lidocaine, you are hoping to reduce the sensitivity and the reactivity of the arytenoids. So that way, as you're trying to intubate them gently, uh, you don't trigger that laryngospasm reflex. Uh, and so that's I think the general goal and yeah. we tend just to do that for every cat
1: I do do it for every cat just to be on the safe side and then also when you are intubating and you have your laryngoscope just making sure that that is not touching the larynx or the retinoids or just pushing down on the tongue itself yeah um, that can help prevent any kind of laryngospasms yeah
0: and i think generally speaking dogs were more likely to see really long soft palates it can be just kind of harder to see the the arytenoids some might get um put some pressure on the epiglottis in a dog or something of trying to push the soft palate out of the way and i don't think that's ever really necessary to cat
1: no i don't think that's an issue even in your brachycephalic cats i don't think that's really a concern
0: yeah so in with that, you also want to make sure that when you go to intubate, that they are sufficiently anesthetized at the time. So if they're still licking, if they're still chewing, and you're trying to um, put the lidocaine on the larynx at that point, they are still not anesthetized enough for to tolerate an intubation. And having the patients to make sure that they are truly uh, fully anesthetized at that point uh, is can be actually really worth it.
1: Yeah, I think if you do try and intubate too early, you can see it'll they'll like flutter almost, and they make that like coughing hissing sound the cats do. And a good little trick is. If you haven't already put lidocaine, you can do lidocaine, give them a break, potentially give them more induction drug, and then get a polypropylene catheter, Mm -hmm. a small size, three and a half or five French, and um, place that, and then use that as a stylet and Mm -hmm. put your endotracheal tube over the catheter to aid in in intubation.
0: The only trick I would suggest is that because the polypropylene catheter is wider at the at the base and then gets pretty thin. I tend to preload my endotracheal tube on the polypropylene and then sometimes I just have a, a friend hold the catheter and so my hands are only on the polypropylene and I'm it's it's I would say firm, right? But mm-hmm. gentle, it will bend easily, so it's not like a metal coat hanger or anything. And it's tiny and also Sometimes I find that the cat's mouth is so small that once I put the laryngoscope in and then my endotracheal tube, I can't see anything and I can't see the airway. And so it almost becomes a little bit of a blind intubation, but that polypropylene is small enough that I can still see everything I need to. And so I feed my polypropylene in between my retinoids And then when I know that they're about to inhale, I slide my endotracheal tube over it. And I, I think it can make intubating cats so easy. Um, but it's just another step of setup. It's another thing that you have to grab or have kind of at
1: your, at your, at, at hand. your disposal. Yeah. I think that some people use stylets when they're intubating cats as mm-hmm. like a normal practice. Yep. Um, yeah. And just making sure that the bottom of the stylet is not exposed past your endotracheal tube. Yeah. You don't want to cause like any a Like a true, tube. like almost like a wire exactly. stylet. Yeah. Exactly. A wire um, stylet. Um, so... I tend to not use that as my first line. I'd always just... But what we're describing here is not actually
0: using the polypropylene as a true stylet. We are using it, like it's called a bougie, B-O-U-G-I-E. And that's almost, it's more like a guide tube where you're placing the smaller tube into the trachea as a guide for the endotracheal tube to slide over it. Exactly. And that's it's just different. But when you use that, you want to make sure, again, it's something that won't damage the trachea. But the polypropylene, especially these tiny ones, are so flimsy. Mm-hmm. They also make a professional um, device. It's called a Cook Airway Exchanger. And I do love them so much. I do too. And the cool thing about the Cook Exchangers is we use them exactly the same way, but there's an attachment at the base of it that allows it to be connected to the anesthesia machine. So you can actually preload your endotracheal tube onto the Cook airway, connect the Cook to your anesthesia machine, so it's um, so oxygen, fresh gas is actually flowing through the Cook, and then you can intubate with the Cook, slide your endotracheal tube down, and that whole time you're delivering oxygen to the patient.
1: Yeah, really that's really cool. great to use also in cats that have any kind of oral obstruction, so like yeah. a mass on the tongue or... Or a mucosal sal- muc- like a salivary gland. Exactly. Anything that would potentially cause an obstruction. Um, I just wanted to know, in when we're using the polypropylene catheter as almost uh, using it as the bougie... Um, I hope I, that's how you actually pronounce I, it. I've only had to read it. I've never had to say it. I have seen people where they... Cut the um, wider tip off, and that makes me a little bit nervous because then it's the same diameter all the way down. And like, what are the chances you would potentially lose that or drop it? Or yeah. drop it? Oh, I don't know.
0: I yeah. I mean, at least the cat's trachea is pretty short, so it shouldn't go. And those polypropylenes are really long, but that's a good point. I worry about that sometimes if we had dogs that have like airway obstructions and we'll use. Um, we have true like long cook airway exchangers for these big guys and big tubes um but i do worry about that with them especially Mm -hmm. with the handover but yeah hopefully it's yeah it's a good point Mm -hmm. so um yeah okay so laryngospasm is definitely a concern actually there are some people who will paralyze their cat as they're going to intubate it, that always makes me very nervous because then yes. it's, what if intubation doesn't go well and now you have a cat that's not breathing and has no way people of... people are scrambling
1: for a ventilator and Ugh. that sounds like a mess.
0: But maybe it works in your practice if you're used to it, but that's one way to avoid laryngospasm, although that to me seems like a high risk, maybe high reward, but high risk.
1: Potentially I would prefer to maybe just give more of my induction drug Same. and use the lidocaine and give a few seconds yeah for that to kick in and try again yep there is actually uh there's some studies showing that there actually is
0: an increased mortality with intubating cats for very short procedures because this risk of of laryngospasm can be so significant in them so if what you're doing is literally only gonna last 10 or 15 minutes and you're not suspicious that this cat either has a mass in the airway that's going to cause airway obstruction or is a relatively low risk for regurgitation, like it's not a stomach foreign body, then there is some evidence suggesting that maybe not intubating and just using a flow-by with a mask or a cone might be preferred.
1: Would you say that that is recommended in minor procedures, say like a small laceration repair that's Maybe only first layer of skin or so. Yeah. Um, or it's, you know, bite small bite wounds right. that aren't infiltrating or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think
0: that's probably ideal. Sometimes we'll do it for quick CTs where it's it really is not worth the risk to the trachea, the risk to the larynx if it's going to be a four minute diagnostic procedure. Um, but just having that as an idea, there is a thing called a V gel, which is mm-hmm. they make them for rabbits. They make it for a couple things, but it's a it's a plastic airway thing it has this kind of cool tip at the end it's like I think it's green for cats or maybe it's purple for rabbits I can't remember exactly and it slides up over the larynx and actually plugs the esophagus with the end part and there's a hole that allows the cat to breathe through this tube and there's a co2 attachment it's all very uh it's all very cool and so you don't actually have to intubate the cat um it's called like oh it's almost like a laryngeal mask airway or an LMA that they use in people, um, and you can positive pressure ventilate through it if you had to, which is really cool. But if they do spasm, there's it's not really going to help you. In that case, you would want an actual endotracheal tube.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So if they if, but it's something for a short procedure. It's something that you can use, which is kind of cool.
1: I think it's important to note one of the probably major risks of intubating a cat is moving them around afterwards. Um, we've seen a great deal of laryngeal tears or... Well, we haven't seen a great deal of them. Well, tracheal we get, tears, I meant. Yeah. Well, we get yeah. like one a year, which yeah. feels like really it does feel like a because lot for it's us. Ex, it's a lot for us. It's yeah. scoping and exploring and intubating and extubating and intubating. Yeah. It's, they're hard to find. They can
0: be. And there, it's kind of... I always feel like we like to think that we're always doing good for our patients. And if we cause iatrogenic trauma to them while they're under our care, I think everyone takes it very seriously Mm -hmm. and everyone gets a little disappointed with themselves because it just doesn't feel good.
1: No, so just being extra careful Unplugging your cu- your endotracheal tube from the breathing circuit when you are rotating them, yep. um, or just moving their head gently and making sure the tube goes with you yeah. when you're turning, so yep. that it's not twisting in the airway. Yep, exactly. Sometimes
0: it's not even just going from lateral to dorsal recumbency, but it's let's say, hey, can we scoop the body down like? six inches or something because we're just going to like awkward position and so then the prep person then takes the body and moves the body really quickly instead of having that coordinated okay did you disconnect i mean everyone's Mm -hmm. being very aware of not moving they're so small that everything's so connected where a big dog you can kind of shift the hips and you know nothing in the front of the body even notices Um, but that's really not true with cats so that's a great point I think that is a perfect segue to kind of our last little section here in talking about anesthetic complications. So one, these guys are at a greater risk of, well, feline asthma is just a thing. So they're more prone to bronchoconstriction. And I think that if I do see hypoxemia in a cat, so the pulse ox starts to drop, I am just pretty quick to reach for a bronchodilator like terbutaline,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and that's 0.01 mg per keg IM or sub Q.
1: I've had to use that a couple times, and it has saved me. The cat would, the SpO2 kind of would be hanging around 94, maybe 95, and it gets better, a little bit better, when you do some um, bre- a little bit of breath holding. Yeah. But then when you stop, it goes back down. Yep. They're just not maintaining it on their own like they should be because they are on supplemental oxygen and there's no other reason for that to happen. Exactly. Always when I'm looking through a history, if I ever see any kind of note of feline asthma, even if the owners potentially, even if the cat's not being treated, the owners don't mention it, but right. you do see it maybe like back in the history. Yeah. That's something to consider and just having your tibutaline ready. Yeah, just bring it in the OR with you. Is a great help. Yeah, of course.
0: The other thing that cats tend to deal with are uh, is heart disease. And I think most notably hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or HCM. And... I I feel like what I've heard is that 50% of cats that have a murmur have HCM, and the other 50% are actually totally normal. It's a physiologic murmur. 50% of cats that don't have a murmur are normal, and the other half have HCM. (laughs) So unless you have essentially an echo, if your cat has a murmur or no murmur, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. But there apparently, I've actually just learned this recently, there's a cardiac troponin test or a CTN1, I think is what they call it. And that actually lets you know if there's heart damage and if the heart is is angry. So maybe if in your practice you don't have the access to an echo, you could run this test to try to see if your cat has HCM or not.
1: I think as a general rule in our practice, if there is a heart murmur present and the owners are electing not to do an echo and not to work it up, we just assume this cat has cardiac disease and treat it with cardiac safe drugs regardless. Yeah,
0: exactly. So, and what does this all mean? So hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is when the heart muscle grows excessively and the muscle walls themselves get thicker and thicker. And instead of growing outwards, it actually grows inwards and it makes the interior chamber smaller and smaller and smaller. And unfortunately, that muscle growth is not matched by increased coronary perfusion. And so you tend to have a greater kind of oxygen demand by the heart, but not necessarily as much oxygen supply. So in the result, you can start to see Greater cardiac ischemia or hypoxia, and then with that, uh, as it gets severe, you might even start to see uh, VPCs or kind of ectopic beats, and that usually is a good signal that you have some significant heart disease going on in this patient. So, so what do we do when we have a patient that we think has HCM? One thing. We want to try to avoid increasing our cardiac demand, right? So we want to avoid excessively high heart rates. Does that mean that we tolerate a heart rate of 60 in cats? No, we do not. (laughs) We try to keep it at least in triple digits, but we want to avoid a heart rate of 220, 240, especially under anesthesia.
1: That's a lot of workload on the heart. Yep. On the already thickened, diseased heart. I think that... When the walls are thickened like that, it not only increases your oxygen demand, but also your um, volume is potentially less. Yeah. The amount of volume that's allowed to be in the heart at one time. Yep. Uh, so I think that um, then they can tend to have like contractility uh, issues. Well, they tend to have very strong contractility. They have a
0: hard time... Uh, relaxing and allowing the influx Mm -hmm. of blood so i think in these guys big boluses or can be a problem i mean if you have a lacerated aorta and the cat is bleeding out you still have to replace that blood loss right Mm -hmm. but if you have some mild hypotension i don't usually think to slug these guys with a big fluid bolus because i think you'll just end up overpowering the heart maybe pushing them into
1: heart failure in general i feel as though cats have a, are more likely to become fluor, fluid overloaded anyways yeah and especially in the face of cardiac disease yes i would agree we also try
0: to avoid any kind of increases in sympathetic tone so that fight or flight response and we know drugs like ketamine actually directly trigger the adrenal gland to release more epinephrine and mm-hmm. Therefore, maybe in these guys where we're suspicious of HCM, we should be avoiding ketamine, especially at higher doses. Mm -hmm. That means that kitty magic for these guys would kind of be a little- Off the
1: table. Off the table. Yeah,
0: Yeah, exactly. And there might be some benefit in dexmedetomidine. I mean, that it's a controversial subject. I think- It is. (laughs) Especially if you ask the cardiologist. Yeah, exactly. I think it depends on who you ask, and you're going to get- like people either fall in one camp or the other. Mm-hmm. Where Dexmed, it decreases the heart rate. It's actually supposed to have a vasodilative. If you use slow doses and you use a CRI, you shouldn't see a massive increase in afterload that's going to increase your work. It's going to slow down your heart rate and it's actually going to squash spikes in sympathetic tone. That's the whole point of Dexmed. And those are all good things, but maybe with that initial vasoconstrictive phase, Maybe that's inappropriate for your cat. And again, it's, it's controversial, but there's possibility that there is some benefit.
1: I think in general, dexmed in cats is a little bit scary because of the low heart rate. Yeah. And so what actually are you tolerating for a heart rate once you've given dexmed? Um, and I think that then trying to figure out, well, what to do next, right? So do you give glyco? I mean. The yeah. cat has heart disease. And so I think that's probably why people tend to... Or just... it's definitely
0: a contributing factor.
1: Exactly. So play, a lot of people, I think, play on the safe side and just say, well, this cat has heart disease, ketamine's out, is out. Yeah.
0: It's easy. Yeah. And if you want like an easy baseline rule, that's something you can choose. Mm-hmm. Although you're just taking away your sedation options. So true. you might be... Well, yeah, I don't know. I think every case just has to be handled on an individual basis. Mm-hmm. And... Well, I would say that's probably true for every patient we see. We make individual decisions. And about that, with hypotension, low blood pressure, that can be hard to, to manage in cats. And in general, I think a lot of people use a Doppler for mm-hmm. blood pressure, if especially if you don't have the ability to place a direct art line. That takes a lot of practice, especially in cats. And... What they've actually shown is that the Doppler readings in cats might be closer to the mean blood pressure, more so than the systolic. So in dogs, even small dogs, the Doppler is closer to the systolic. And in cats, it seems to be closer to the mean pressure or the average blood pressure. And so if systolic is your peak pressure over one cardiac cycle, diastolic is the lowest pressure in one cycle, and mean is just another word for average. So we usually care the most about maintaining the mean pressure above 65-ish, maybe above 70 if you're really going for gold. And so if your Doppler corresponds more with the mean, then maybe you have a, to- like a, a greater tolerance for kind of lower-ish Doppler numbers where I would intervene with a dog, a Doppler below 90, whereas a cat, I might let it drift to 80 before I'm really doing things just because of this association with the mean pressure versus systolic
1: and if the if i have time and the Cat is doing well under anesthesia and you have a sensitive enough oscillometric unit, mm-hmm. it's sometimes very interesting to run both the oscillometric and the Doppler at the same time, just to kind of see what the oscillometric is reading as the mean, and then see if that's matching to what you're getting on the Doppler. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of like a fun little thing that yeah. I like to do. Uh, in between
0: your the- five minutes of recording. <laughs> exactly,
1: <laughs> It's our own little experiments. I like to run little experiments and... Yeah see how that how that's going but it is interesting because i do feel like most of the time the mean does match what you're getting on the doppler Yep,
0: yeah. i think sometimes we'll have the art line the doppler and the asymmetric
1: <laughs> all running at the same time and we, uh, we should but then t- you get into the into the um challenge of which one do you believe the art line always
0: <laughs> but if, if you don't have one of those then yeah if they're giving you drastic numbers that Ah, oh, just makes it more complicated. Which, and
1: then it's uh, probably best just to stick with one yeah. blood
0: pressure monitor. <laughs> exactly. Pick one. Um, so if they are, if your cat is particularly bradycardic, especially with either high doses of opioids or Dexmed, I mean, again, I usually don't let my cats drift in the double digits. And so I find that especially ones that have, you've really squashed their sympathetic tone with Dexmed, you can try giving glyco. And I feel like you, nothing may happen. It may get worse. Mm-hmm. Usually nothing happens. And then you give another dose of glyco, and you're still at, oh, now you're at 102. Good for you. You're really doing great. <laughs> um, and then you try a dose of atropine, nothing happens. And I find that cats sometimes don't always respond to anticholinergics as well. And at this point, I tend to rope in an extra drug called ephedrine, E-P-H-E-D-R-I-N-E. And ephedrine works as a single bolus. And it kind of tells the adrenal gland to like, wake up. Hello, Yeah. where are you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's almost like doing a sympathetic reset for the cat. And especially if you have a normal, healthy cat that got a lot of dexmed in his premed, and is not responding to glyco now, then I reach for my ephedrine and I find that everything just kind of, it balances out really nicely. It's not super dramatic. Maybe my heart rate goes from 90 to 135, not tachycardic, but I would consider that much more normal and my blood pressure comes up and everyone just seems happy. And then usually we never look back. It's like we press the reset button and
1: we're good to go. Yeah. I think it's super useful. You know, after induction is really when they start to like tank out their numbers, their bradycardia and the hypotension. You really see that, especially after your induction agent, like propofol. Um, and then, you know, you kind of try and ride it out for a little bit. Then you end up giving an opioid, and then you're moving into the OR, plus or minus, giving a bit more propofol while, during light. transit. Yep. And then it's once you get into the OR and you're like, wow, these numbers are kind of crappy. And you really need the ephedrine to kind of boost you back up to yep. a normal state. And it's really just the bump you need. Yeah, exactly.
0: Set it and forget it. And then that's it makes it much, so much easier. I think that's a secret ticket to cats is ephedrine. And dogs it, it it works only for three minutes and it doesn't usually work the Get way you it. want it to yeah. and it's just maybe some people have better experiences with it but i find cats it is uh, the golden ticket it is yes so uh, so for hypotension yep so we've discussed treating bradycardia, and then if you think that your cat needs fluids just be careful we talked about earlier how they we tend to be more likely to fluid overload them. Remember that the blood volume in a cat is 60 mils per keg, that's six zero, versus a dog it's closer to 90 mils per keg. So cats in general have a lot less tolerance for very high fluid volumes and rates. But there are a couple of times, I mean hemorrhage, like I said before, uh they need blood. So if you're having significant losses, that's you need to make up for it. But if they have chronic kidney disease, very common in cats, and they can't concentrate their urine, they're gonna have higher outputs that you have to match. Do they have diabetes? That high urine glucose is gonna suck out more water out of the body, they're gonna have greater losses. And also, if you have a urinary obstruction, Once you relieve that obstruction, there's this phenomenon called post obstruction diuresis, meaning that once you take out the plug, then the cat just the kidneys go on overdrive and just like dump out tons of fluid. You're also going to have to try to keep up with that. But unless you have a direct indication that your patient is behind on volume, then just be careful, you know, Not, don't like slam in 20 mils per keg in 10 minutes because. You don't really know what else to do.
1: Yeah. I think that in dogs generally, like, you know, you hit nine, nine, nine as your fluid bull <laughs> setting, yeah. but in cats it's, uh, it would be slower, you know, over like give a bolus over 20 minutes. Yeah. Um, and so it's not that like fast push to yeah. rehydrate. Exactly. They just don't tolerate that as well. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think that
0: essentially wraps up what we were going to talk about today with our cats and I think there's a lot of things to remember they you know they tolerate opioids a little bit differently they tend to kind of need more balanced anesthetic protocols because they tend to have a greater inhalant requirement we uh, have to be careful about intubating these guys and any kind of manipulation of the trachea because they can spasm really easily and they're also more prone to trauma and then trying to manage their hypotension and their cardiac disease and hcm it can all kind of adds to the to the pool. And that can be challenging. But we want to thank you guys for listening today and we look forward to talking with you
1: next time. Thank you very much.